Good morning, Reality Carpenteria. Shalom. Shalom. Here we are. We're joining you from Israel. And we're happy to be with you this morning. And this morning we are live on location in a place called Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi, in the time of Jesus, was one of the spiritually darkest regions in all of Israel. And so right now, we're going to open up our Bibles to Mark chapter 8. And we're going to read about what took place here. Mark chapter 8, we've been studying the book of Mark at Reality. And we're going to pick it up right where we left off. Father, as we get into your word, we're grateful for the land, we're grateful for this location, and all that you invested in the life of the disciples 2,000 years ago in this place. And now we ask God that you would invest in our lives, that you would invest right here in these disciples and back home at Reality Carpinteria, that you would make an investment in us that would bear fruit for your kingdom and your glory. So Lord, through your word, speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you guys remember that we've been talking about the way that Jesus has been equipping the disciples. And the most recent, recent account of that was in Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 1, with the feeding of the 4,000. We know that he had already fed the 5,000, and in the feeding of the 5,000, he was equipping the disciples to do the work of the ministry. You'll remember that he engaged them by asking Philip, Philip, what do you think we ought to do about feeding these 5,000 families, probably 20,000 people? And of course, Philip had an answer that was void of faith. We don't have enough money to do it. And then it was Andrew who came along and said, well, I've got this kid, and he's got five loaves and a couple fish, but what are these for so many? And of course, the lesson is that a little in the hands of God is a lot. And so through the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus was teaching the disciples that in the context of ministry and meeting the needs of the people, they would have to rely upon his power and his strength. But the heartbreaking thing that we learned when we studied the feeding of the 5,000 was that the disciples hadn't gained any insight from the incident of the loaves and the fish. We're told that in Mark chapter 6. And so because they didn't learn the lessons, Jesus made them get in the boat and head out onto the Galilee where we were yesterday on a boat, on the Galilee, worshiping Jesus. They got in the boat, they headed out, and a storm came. And Jesus was able to teach them more through the storm than they learned through the miracle. Very important for the equipping of you and I as disciples of Jesus Christ. And now, in chapter 8, wanting to teach them further, he has the feeding of the 4,000. And this time, he asks them, and I think, we talked about this at Reality Carp, rather slyly. They asked him rather slyly, rather, in verse 4 of chapter 8. And his disciples answered Jesus and said, Where will anyone be able to find enough to satisfy these men with bread here in a desolate place? Remember, they would recall the feeding of the 5,000. And I think they're saying to Jesus, Jesus, what are you going to do this time? And Jesus says to them in chapter 8, verse 5, and he was asking them, how many loaves do you have? In other words, when there were needs, and they came to God and said, God, can you meet the needs of the people? Christ's response immediately to them was, well, what do you have? 
What are you going to bring to the table? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9 says that we are co-laborers with Christ Jesus. Whenever God is going to meet the needs, He's going to use us as a part of that, and that which He has given us, our gifts, our talents, our finances, whatever He has given us, He wants to use. And so they responded, and they said, well, we have seven loaves. And with that seven loaves, Jesus would feed the 4,000. But here's the amazing thing that we spoke of a couple weeks at Reality Carpinteria. Remember, the Pharisees came, and they were challenging Jesus, asking Him for a sign. And then in verse 13, it says, And leaving them, He again embarked and went away to the other side. And they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more, any more than one loaf with them in the boat. And so they had gotten in the boat and they forgot to bring bread. And Jesus says to them in verse 15, He was giving them orders saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Jesus was talking here about the sin of unbelief of the leaders in the land and the leaders of the religion. And He's telling His disciples, Don't let your hearts be hardened in unbelief. The Pharisees had seen the miracles of the Lord and yet they lacked faith. And the disciples were heading on the same road. Saints, we've got to be aware of this danger of seeing the Lord transforming our lives, transforming the lives around us, and yet our hearts being hardened to the reality of His transforming power. We've got to keep ourselves by a study of the Word and the worship of God in a soft place where we're continually amazed at the work of the hand of the Lord. But the disciples, even though they saw it and they experienced it, they were becoming hardened. And so Jesus said, Be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees, the sin of unbelief. Now the poor disciples, remember this, in verse 16. And they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? When Jesus mentioned leaven, an ingredient in bread, at least leavened bread, the disciples immediately thought, Oh, he's mad at us because we forgot to bring bread in the boat. And the Lord says, come on, guys. I fed the 5,000. I fed the 4,000. I'm not concerned about the bread. I'm concerned about your heart and your faith. Why is it you don't see yet? Why is it you don't understand? Do you have a hardened heart? And we studied that a couple weeks ago. Now, before we get to this region in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus has his men down in Bethsaida, which is just 20 mi 25 miles south of where we're at right now on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. And in Bethsaida, in our text, he's going to perform a miracle in a very unique way. And what this miracle is, is a living parable. It's a living instruction for the disciples. And he's wanting to illustrate to them the condition of their heart, the lack of their faith, and their unwillingness to see Christ for who he is. And then the culmination of the identity of Jesus will take place right here. And we pick it up now. In verse 22, it says, And they came to Bethsaida. Bethsaida was, of course, the home of Philip and Peter and Andrew, the disciples. And they brought a blind man to him and were begging Jesus to touch him. And taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. And after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands upon him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see men, but I'm seeing them as trees walking about. Remember, in a previous text, the Lord had healed another blind man, again, or I'm sorry, it was a man who couldn't speak or hear, and he had spit upon his tongue and stuck his fingers in his ears. Weird. Who can discern the mind of God? He does things in a different way. 
And here now he spits and he puts it on the guy's eyes. And then he says, do you see? And the guy says, I see, but I don't see clearly. I'm seeing men for the first time in my life. Think of the excitement that came to this man's heart. He had never seen before, and now he's seen people. The light had first come in at this moment. What a glorious moment it was in his life. But he wasn't seen fully. He wasn't seeing all that God wanted him to see. I see, but the people are like trees. I can't really make them out, but I'm seeing. Now, this is a condition of the disciples. The light has come as prophesied to the land of Nephtali, to the land of Zebulun. The light of Jesus Christ has come. The disciples are walking with him. They're beginning to see. They've seen the miracles. They've seen the calming of the storm. They've seen Jesus walk on the water. Peter walked on the water. But they don't see fully. They don't totally understand that Jesus is the Messiah and, very carefully now, the nature of his mission. And so now Jesus, through the condition of this blind man, having some light but not seeing clearly, is illustrating the condition of the heart of the disciples. And we pick it up in verse 25. Then again Jesus laid his hands upon his eyes, and he looked intently, that is, the man looked intently, and was restored, and began to see everything clearly. There it is. Jesus then laid his hands, and when the man looked intently, when he looked carefully, it says he began to see everything perfectly. And this is what the Lord is wanting the disciples to do. Here is what didn't happen. Jesus didn't have a deficiency of power in Bethsaida. It's not as though Jesus spit on his eyes and he wasn't totally healed, and the Lord went, oh man, (laughs) this one's a toughie, I didn't have what it took. There's no way that our theology allows for that. Rather, the Lord was teaching them a lesson. He had healed other blind men with just a word, with just a touch, so we know he could do it. But now he touches them again, and when the man, look, 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 when the man looks intently, he begins to see clearly. This is why each one of us has to study the Word of God for ourselves. To look intently, with purpose, into the Word that we might see the nature of Christ carefully. This is why we've come to Israel. To see it with our own eyes. To look intently. To walk where Jesus walked. To be in the very place that we might see clearly. So now having illustrated this, having given a living parable to the disciples, now comes the most important moments in the life of the disciples thus far. Jesus and the boys are going to leave Bethsaida on the northern end of the Galilee, 25 miles south. They're going to make the trip on foot up here that we just made on bus. And they're going to arrive at this place known as Caesarea Philippi. Here's what took place here. In the year 332 BC, 332 years before Christ, Alexander the Great was conquering the world. He was becoming the leader of the world. And he came into this region And when the Greeks came into this region, they saw the land and they saw the beauty and they were overwhelmed with the spot. And so they created or they uh, uh, chose that this would become a center for worship. We're in an amazing place. We're at the base of the Golan Heights. Just over to my right is uh, Lebanon. We can see in the distance over these trees, Lebanon over there. Just behind me is Syria. And between me and Syria is Mount Hermon. 
And Mount Hermon, of course, is mentioned in the Bible many times, notably in Psalm 133, where it says how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell in unity. It is like the dew that comes from Mount Hermon and refreshes Mount Zion. And so we're standing really at the base of Mount Hermon, and here is flowing from the base of this mountain, the headwaters are one of three headwaters to the Jordan River. And so they came here, and out of this cave on my right, you see this cave. This cave is 45 feet high, 60 feet wide. It was here 2,000 years ago and even before. And at that time, part of the headwaters of the Jordan River flowed forth out of this cave. And it was beautiful, and the waters were cold. It was the snow mount of Mount Hermon, and the waters would come forth from here. And so the Greeks said, we're going to establish at this place the worship of the god Pan and of the nymphs. The god Pan was the god of the fields and the god of the shepherds. And he was, in Greek mythology, that god that was half goat and half man. And so the Greeks at this time were beginning to, in this area, worship the goats. And they would also make sacrifices to this god. You can see right behind me here that there are on this cliff these five niches. And in these niches were placed the idols of the Greek god Pan and of the nymphs. There's this large cave over here, and there's a niche here where an idol would be placed. There's one right above. Over here we see three more niches where those 2,000 years ago, those Greek gods, those idols would be placed. And the worship of Pan that took place in this area was evil. It was dark, and it was demonic. And the people in the land were terrified of the god Pan. In fact, that's where we get our English word panic is from the Greek god Pan because he was such a terrible god and he had the people under such a burden. And so there was in this place the worship of the Greek god Pan and the nymphs and the people were terrified. Later on, as the Romans begin to move into the land, Herod the Great was given this region. And Herod the Great built here a uh, temple for the worship of Caesar and the Roman gods. And later, his son, Philip, came and expanded the worship center. And so we have the name Caesarea Philippi. And so in the time of Jesus, this was the hotbed of false religion. This was the hotbed of false spirituality. We had the worship of the Greek gods. We had the worship of the Roman gods. We had the sacrifice of animals. We had the immoral acts that would have taken place right here at the mouth of this cave. Really, it was a lot like the area of Santa Barbara. It was where the false religions came together. It was where the false religions came together and Satan had the people under a burden. He had the people in bondage. They were worshiping the false gods and anything that was new in spirituality, this is where it was unveiled. This is where it took place. Oh, this is the latest thing. Oh, this is the newest thing. This is the newest God, and, and this is how we're worshiping Him. Just like the New Age movement that we see so much of in our area of Santa Barbara and Carpinteria and beyond. And so Jesus and His guys made the journey from Bethsaida all the way up here, and He had His men and when he got them to this place, this spiritual hotbed, this center for pagan worship, the Lord asked them a very important question. And that's where we pick it up again in our text. Verse 27. And Jesus went out, along with his disciples, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. 
And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? Remember, he's been wanting to reveal his identity. He walked on the water. He fed the 5,000. He healed the blind man. And now they've had 25 miles to think about these things. The feeding of the five, the feeding of the 4,000, the healing of the blind man. All the while, no doubt, the Holy Spirit is ministering to their hearts. Remember when he spit on the guy's eyes and he didn't see clearly? That's you. You're not seeing clearly. And then remember when he looked intently after the Lord laid his hand upon him? He had clear vision. This is what the Lord wants to do in your heart. And he begins to prompt them by asking them, Who do the people say that I am? The Lord will do this in your lives all the time. All the time. He'll begin to ask you questions to build into you a faith. We were worshiping yesterday on a boat of the Sea of Galilee, and one of the guys who was with us uh, during our time of worship, he shared with me afterward, and he said, the Lord spoke to me more clearly than he's ever spoken to me in my life. It was like lightning in my chest. And the Lord said to me, if I walked on the water to you now on this boat, would you get out and walk to me? You see, the Lord began to ask a question to check his faith. The Lord will do that with us. Same thing. He's asking the disciples. So who do the people say that I am? And here comes the answer. Verse 28. And they told him, saying, "Uh, John the Baptist, some people think you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. In other words, there were a lot of opinions about Jesus in that day, even as there is now. You talk to people about Jesus now and they say, oh, he was a great prophet. He was a great moral teacher. He was one of many prophets, you know. He was an ascended master. All this junk that the Bible doesn't allow for. Same thing 2,000 years ago in this region of Caesarea Philippi. The people said, oh, well, we've got our Greek god Pan, and we've got the Roman gods, and he's, you know, he's maybe Elijah. He's maybe John the Baptist, maybe one of the prophets. Anything but the Messiah. Anything but the Son of God. So now, having them thinking about the identity of who he is, Now he makes it very personal. Look at this. Verse 29. And Jesus continued by questioning them. But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And this is the spot where it took place. They would say, well, gosh, there are all these different gods in the land. And maybe they were standing right here. And maybe Christ was thinking, well, we know who these are. All the people know who these are. But who do you say that I am? Listen. Jesus took the false religions head on. He took false spirituality head on. He said, when I'm going to reveal my identity to my people, I'm going to take them right to the hotbed of false spirituality. He didn't run. He didn't hide. He said, let's go to Caesarea Philippi. And then we'll reveal that I'm the Messiah. And they might have stood right here with pagan worship going on, with false sacrifices going on, with immorality, with all these things, with all the demonic spiritual darkness right here. And Jesus said, okay, boys, this is the reality of false religion. This is the emptiness of it. This is the darkness of it. Who do you say that I am? One more time, boys, let's get it straight. Who am I? And who do you think answers? For sure, Peter. It's always Peter. Whenever a question is asked to the group, it's going to be Peter first. He was questioning them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, Thou art the Christ. You are the Messiah. And it adds in Matthew 16, the Son of the living God. Peter got it. On this spot right here, Peter got it. Peter looked around and said, 
This isn't real. This isn't real worship. This isn't real religion. These aren't real gods. Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're the Son of the living God. Now we know from the account in Matthew 16, the parallel account, that Jesus responded and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He said, Peter, you just received revelation from on high. You just received information from the Father. God is speaking to you, revealing who I am. So important that we realize that it is the Spirit of God that reveals the identity of Christ to people as we evangelize. That is why we've got to talk to God about a man before we talk to man about a God. We've got to say, God, open their eyes. Open their hearts. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says, If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, these false gods, but literally Satan, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the glory of the gospel of God in Christ Jesus. So, paraphrase, if someone doesn't see the reality of Jesus Christ, they're blinded by the work of Satan. The book of Corinthians tells us that we have a weapon that is divinely powerful to tear down the strongholds. 2,000 years later, there's no false gods here. They've been torn down. What is our divine weapon to tear down the false gods? It's prayer. We have been given a divinely powerful weapon by which we can cast down every speculation that seeks to exalt itself against God. And so, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for that's a revelation from God. And so you can imagine, because you guys, we've studied the life of Peter. You know Peter now. When Jesus says in front of the other disciples, Oh, Peter, you're blessed. The Father just spoke to you. What would Peter do? Oh, yep. Oh, amen. Oh, amen, Lord. Yeah. James, you hear that? John, Matthew, you better recognize, I'm the one that just heard from God. <laughs> That's Peter. He's a lot like me. That's how I know. Verse 30. And Jesus warned them to tell no one about him. Just as a side note, we also see in verse 26 when he healed the blind man. And he sent him to his home and said, don't even enter the village. This is something we call in theology the messianic secret. Jesus would heal people. He would reveal his identity. And repeatedly in the Gospels, he says, don't tell anyone who I am. Because he wanted to be revealed to the nation as the Messiah at the triumphal entry. That was the day. That was that day before Passover when the nation would be choosing the Passover lamb. And that was the day ordained in Daniel chapter 9 when God predicted to the very day that the Messiah would come into the land. And so there is this idea in theology of the messianic secret that the Lord did not want to reveal to the nation too soon who he was. Same thing here. Okay, Peter, you've got it right. Don't tell anybody yet. We're not done yet. Now look what happens. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus told them clearly, okay boys, here's what's going to happen. In Mark chapter 8, we are again at a turning point. We're halfway through the book of Mark. Everything now from Caesarea Philippi heads toward Jerusalem. Everything now is headed toward the cross. And now Jesus begins to reveal plainly to his disciples, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed by the religious leaders. I'm going to be crucified. And in three days, I'll rise again. He tells them very clearly. 
And he was stating the matter plainly, verse 32. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Here's what Peter did. Oh, Pete. Here's what Peter did. Peter took him aside. Look at the arrogance of this. Oh, oh Lord. Listen, I just heard from the Father. Jesus, let me tell you a few things. Come here. He took him aside and he began to rebuke him. Oh, Jesus, it's not going to go down that way, bro. We're going to go into Jerusalem. Everything's going to be cool. You're the conquering king. You're the conquering king. We're going to go in there. We're going to open up a can on the Romans. We're going to open up a can on the Pharisees. Lord, it's not going to be so. You shouldn't say such things, Jesus. Ouch, Peter. It says that Peter began to rebuke him. And we're told in Matthew chapter 16 that when Peter said that, Jesus said, exclamation point, Get behind me, Satan! Whoa. Just a minute ago, he said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And not ten seconds later, Get behind me, Satan! And the explanation, right here, verse 33. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan! For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. You are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. You see, it didn't fit Peter's plan that Jesus would die on a cross. It didn't fit Israel's plan that the Messiah would come and suffer as predicted in Isaiah chapter 53. To this day, in the synagogues, they read all throughout the year the scriptures of the Old Testament. There's only one passage that they leave out every single year. It's Isaiah 53. Because it speaks so clearly of the coming of the Messiah and that he would be a suffering Messiah who died for our transgressions. And Peter and the nation of Israel said, that doesn't fit in with our plan. Be careful, saints. We do the same thing all the time. We hear from God and God begins to lead us. And when it doesn't look like how we thought it ought to look, we begin to rebuke the Lord, so to speak. Hey, wait a minute. This is not what I thought. This is not what I wanted. This is too hard. It shouldn't pan out this way. And the Lord might say to us ever so gently in His grace, get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking the thoughts of God, but the thoughts of man. That is why Colossians chapter 3 tells us who have been born again to keep our mind on the things that are above and not on the things of the world. Unknowingly here, Peter was putting forth a demonic doctrine. What was that doctrine? The doctrine was, let's skip the cross. Remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness? How did, how did Peter t- tempt him? Oh, Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross. You worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. You don't have to go to the cross to be glorified. Throw yourself down from here and everyone will marvel. The temptation of Satan to Jesus was, let's skip the cross. That's why the Garden of Gethsemane was so pivotal. As that spiritual battle took place, Jesus knew what he would encounter upon the cross. And he said... Father, if there's any other way to save men, let's do it. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. And so the demonic doctrine that Peter put forth, being inspired by the enemy, was, no, Jesus, skip the cross. You don't want to do that suffering thing. Listen, saints, the enemy does the same thing to us all the time. It's the health and wealth prosperity gospel. That is a demonic doctrine. Let's skip suffering. Let's skip the burden of the cross. We don't have to pick up our cross. Everything can be just fine. Get behind me, Satan. When hard things come into our life, 
this is wrong, this can't be right, if I just had more faith, if I just prayed more of this, that, and the other, not knowing that nothing has come into the life of the Christian except for it's passed through the lens of the sovereignty of God. And so we need to have our mindset on the heavenly things. And Peter was rejecting the idea of the suffering Messiah and the way of the cross. And so next, Jesus explains in verse 34. And he summoned the multitude with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel shall save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus said that the way is the way of picking up our cross daily. That's how we follow Jesus Christ. That is the counter-argument. That is the counter-truth to the lie of Satan that we need to skip the things of the cross. If anyone wishes to follow after me, let him pick up his cross daily and follow me. What does it mean to pick up our cross? We have a problem with that because we wear crosses around our necks. We make them jewelry. We display them in our churches. We don't really have an idea. In Israel, when the disciples heard, they knew exactly what was going on. They knew that if a man was carrying a cross, he had received a death sentence. He was on his way to die. And so it is for the Christian. Romans chapter 6 says that we who are Christians are dead to sin and alive to Christ. And so we need to, as new creations, reckon the old man dead and walk in the newness of life. And it means that we never put down the cross. Paul said he carries about in him the body of death, that he might live to Christ. So what is this cross that we carry daily? It's not a hard job. It's not your relatives that you don't get along with. It's not these normal life things. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. He didn't call those things crosses to bear. That's called life. A cross is anything that we experience because we are obedient to Christ. The cross is the persecution. The cross is the rejection. The cross is the painful dichotomy of living a godly life in a sinful world. The cross is those things that we experience in the sinful world and at the hands of the enemy because we are obedient to Christ Jesus. And so every day we pick up our identity as a follower of Jesus Christ who is dead to the world and alive to Him. The world behind me, the cross before me. And so no matter what comes our way, we're able to say, hey, I'm not given over to that temptation of the world because what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? That's how Satan tempted Jesus. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you just bow down to me. And the enemy's going to tempt us in the same way. I'll give you everything you want in this world if you just don't follow Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ says, I promise you nothing in this world except for trouble. (laughs) But in the life to come, abundance. In John 14, if I go, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house there are many mansions. And after I go, I will return for you. Now, Matthew chapter 16 is where we end. Turn there. I wanted to save this exhortation for the end. Verse 17 of Matthew 16, reminding us of what we just read. Well, verse 16. 
And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, that is the rock of the confession of who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah. Paul says in the book of Corinthians, we can lay no foundation other than Christ Jesus. Peter himself calls Christ Jesus the rock in his second epistle. He's not talking about Peter being the rock upon which he builds his church. He's talking about Christ Jesus in the profession of who he is. And now he says this. I also say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock, my identity, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail over it. 2,000 years ago, in this area of Caesarea Philippi, the locals had a specific name for this cave. All the locals in this region referred to this cave as the gates of hell. This is the spot where they said the earth opened up to hell and all its demonic influence because this place was so spiritually dark. And so Peter was standing here with Jesus and Jesus said, Peter, that's right. I am going to build my church upon my identity as the Messiah. And Peter, no matter what comes your way, don't forget that the gates of hell will never prevail against my church. Nothing in this world can stand against the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus revealed himself to be the Messiah, the Son of God, the living God. And in him we have life. And through him we are more than conquerors. And listen, saints, it's going to get hard in the church as we live in the last days. Persecution will increase. The rejection of Christian ideals and Christians in general will increase. But Jesus said, the gates of hell will never prevail against my church. And Jesus would have walked away with his disciples saying, yeah, he's a king. He's a Messiah. And from here on out, there's nothing to worry about. He's going to build his church. We don't have to do it. We don't have to build things. He's going to do it. God, we thank you for this wonderful truth and this living illustration of this place. Minister now to those of us here and those of us in Carpinteria, minister to our hearts that you are truly the Messiah. Open our eyes to what that means and cause us to be willing to pick up our crosses daily, to follow you and to follow you in faith knowing that the world has nothing to offer, that the false religions are vanity and that hell will never prevail against your church. Make us bold. Make us loud. Make us wise as serpents, gentle as doves. Empower us. Let us be your anointed representatives of the church that we might co-labor with you as you build it in our community and beyond. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And now to Reality Carpinteria, Shalom!